very good to be here in Cambridge. I want to uh, begin uh, by just asking you to, to just listen uh, to a little bit of chanting um, before we go into the talk. I'll tell you why I'm doing the chanting afterwards, if I can remember it. So that's uh, the traditional seven-line invocation to Padmasambhava, uh, Guru Rinpoche, um, that's invoked before every uh, uh, meditation on Padmasambhava. So um, any devout Tibetan Buddhist, Nyingmapa Buddhist, would begin their sadhanas, their visualization meditation with that chanting and... Uh, Sankarakshita's translation of this is uh, an unusual translation because he translates it like this uh, Hum, to the northwest of the land of Urgyen on the calyx of a lotus flower. O oh, wondrous, the highest city has been attained. Thus, Padmasambhava declares, O oh, thou who art encircled with an entourage of darkenese. Following thy example, will I work? Thou must come here to give me thy blessing. Guru Padma Siddhi Hum. So the way he translates it, according to the oral explanation of his teacher, Dada Rinpoche, uh, the first part of the uh, invocation is Padmasambhava speaking. Hum, to the northwest of the land of Urgen, on the calyx of the lotus flower. O wondrous! The highest city has been attained. That's Padmasambhava speaking. You're speaking his words. And then you're at that level, if you like. You're at that pitch. And then you invoke him to transform you in all your activities. And I wanted to start with with some chanting. um, Because um, before the explanation... um, you don't know what it means. <laughs> it's just uh, sounds, unless you know Tibetan. I don't know if anybody here knows Tibetan. But it's just, it's just sounds. And the reason why I want to do that, because uh, I must admit, I find it very, very difficult to talk about Padmasambhava. Um, increasingly so. I was talking to Ratnagosha earlier about uh, this matter. Um, it becomes, I've been meditating on Padmasambhava for over 40 years uh, daily. And the more I meditate on the image of Padmasambhava, in a sense, the less I know. And I've read very, very widely. There's a lot of material available that you can read up and read about. And you can get wonderful explanations of all the symbolism. There's loads of images. And it's wonderful. It's rich. But the more you meditate, I think, on well, actually, any of these uh, figures that you're, you're considering, that you're looking at, the less you know, or rather the less you feel that uh, words and ideas really communicate what it is that you are in touch with. Uh, Sangharakshita defines myth as the whole realm of undefined and undefinable meaning, which is a brilliant definition, or non-definition, uh, meaning that whatever you say doesn't exhaust the depth of meaning in uh, the image, in the vision. And I think this is very important. I wanted to to start with that. So keep. Uh, it's very important, I think, to keep that in mind as I attempt to uh, try and say something about uh, Padmasambhava. Uh, Guru Rinpoche, the greatly precious guru, as he's known in uh, 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 by by Tibetans, he's a sort of 
semi-historical figure, um, although not perhaps history in our sense uh, of the term. And it's interesting that with, with this image, this is the most Im- the, the sort of central image, not this particular uh, painting of it, because there's lots of different paintings of this particular form. But this is probably the most typical form on which you would meditate on Papasandava. It's the form that, that is generally known uh, in, our, in our own Tree Ratna. And what's interesting about this particular icon, this particular form, it's, um, I was thinking about it, it's, a bit, it it's, it's highly coded, it's a highly concentrated image. Absolutely everything in that image uh, is communicating everything, in a sense, about Padmasambhava. In a way, his whole life, uh, mythical life story, historical life story, is all in there. Um, it, all become, it all reveals itself to you as, as, as you meditate um, on, this particular, on this particular form. You can get lots of explanations of this form, and they're all different, by the way, I should just say. But it sort of um, essentialises um, all the elements in, in Padmasambhava's sort of life story. So I think it might be quite good if we have a little look at that life story, uh, or highlights, because it's life stories, really. The Padmasambhava Namtar, as it's called, the, the, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, takes place actually over lots and lots of lifetimes. Uh, in Sangharachita's review of the book, uh, the, the, one of the main, uh, there's many versions of Padmasambhava's life story, but the main one, the Padma Kaitang, he says it starts in the sort of distant primordial past, flows into uh, a sort of present, and goes on into the future. It actually goes on, it doesn't sort of end. The life story goes on. It hasn't ended, it's actually happening uh, as we speak. It's happening in Cambridge. You could say it's happening wherever uh, Buddhists uh, come together. Sangharachita sees Padmasambhava not as a single figure, but uh, as he calls him, a, a stream, a, a suprapersonal stream of consciousness which flows along with the Dharma with a particular kind of activity a particular kind of activity, most importantly, perhaps most significantly, the activity of transforming. The activity of transforming. Transforming absolutely everything on the path uh, to enlightenment. Everything. Uh, Especially those forces that are hostile, or apparently hostile, and apparently antithetical to our Buddhist practice. They are all taken up, purified, transformed, they enrich our practice, they protect our practice. That's one of Padmasambhava's main uh, functions, um, one of his main activities. Um, yes, that's something to ponder, and maybe we'll, we'll get to saying something about that. But I want to begin with um, the name, Padmasambhava, the lotus born, the one born from the lotus, and that is illustrated by a really beautiful story. Um, it's the story of a king named Indrabhuti or Indrabodhi. Uh, the, the traditions differ from a kind of mythical India, the country of Udhyana, sort of situated probably these days somewhere in the Swat Valley in, in Pakistan, somewhere like that. Um, and uh, he was blind. Uh, he had no son. Uh, his country was suffering from famine. Everybody was uh, suffering, terrible uh, suffering and, and difficulty. And, uh, and of course, being a, a good king, he really wanted to do something about that. So he uh, searched for the wish-fulfilling gem and all sorts of things. Um, I don't know if I say he didn't have an heir, so he didn't have a son. So that was another uh, big concern. And there came a kind of rumour that in a great lake in the northwest of his country, there was a magnificent occurrence. He had dreams, omens, 
that he should go to this place. So he went with his, what's called his orthodox minister. Uh, and they got into a, a boat. They found this lake uh, filled with the most beautiful lotus flowers and scarlet water birds. The, the text said these lovely details. Really beautiful, magical place. And they found, seated in the midst of a beautiful red lotus, uh, an amazing child, an amazing boy child, uh, eight years old, the colour of the purple of seashells. And he was just sitting there holding a lotus and a vadra and looking very happy and very pleased and very pure and with sort of drops of dew on his uh, skin, lovely uh, long black hair and just sitting there, this prodigy, this extraordinarily beautiful child and they were just the, the appearance was just amazing to uh, the king and his, his, his minister and of course they want to know who he is so questions um, so this is Indra Bodhi asking uh, you know, who, who are you <laughs> little boy child who is your father and who is your mother what is your caste and very important in India And what is your country? What food do you live on? And what is your purpose here? And in reply to these questions, the boy said, My father is the wisdom of spontaneous awareness. My mother is the ever-excellent lady, the space of all things. I belong to the caste of indivisible space And awareness. I have taken the unborn realm of reality as my homeland. I sustain myself by consuming the concepts of duality. My purpose is the act of killing the defilements. So imagine an eight year old saying that. I know some, you know, out of the mouth of babes and and all that. I mean, it is an extraordinary almost sort of spooky uh, image of this, of this eight-year-old child um, speaking extraordinary uh, wisdom. And of course, the, the, the king is just, uh, well, he weeps and his blindness goes through the weeping of, of seeing this uh, wonderful child. And of course, he, he wants to adopt the child. This is going to be his son and heir. And, you know, he's installed in the palace and enthroned and given the name, the lake-born uh, Vadra, the Vadra born of the lake, um, also called, and called the Lotus Vadra, and all these different names. And um, it's, it's a very, very beautiful image, a very, very beautiful uh, story. And even here, though, there are, with all of these things, the, the layers, there are many, many layers of, of interpretation. One way you can you can sort of reflect upon this and look at this, is that you could, you could perhaps meditate on this as something that's, that's not happening, as it were, in time. It, it's really becoming aware of, of... It's really waking up, our first perhaps waking up, to the way things are. You know, those first moments or times of radiant vision. You know, those first moments when our faith uh, starts to wake up. You know, we've, you know, you probably wouldn't be here unless there hadn't been something or other where you'd suddenly thought there was much, much more to all this than, uh, than the things that you were doing. Some sort of vision of a different kind of, of consciousness. That's the way I sort of read this, that the eight-year-old eternally eight-year-old is, is really the symbol of that fresh, vital, creative uh, consciousness, enlightened uh, consciousness. In Padmasambhava's uh, tradition, his Atta-yoga Dzogchen tradition, they talk about the nature of enlightened consciousness as fresh and sparkling and bright. And that's always present. You know, and any dullness and... Uh, and reactivity and all that that we have, that's just, 
adventitious, that's superficial, that's not really the nature of things. And it's spontaneous, it's not our own personal possession. It's something that's there, available uh, at all times. Well, we can maybe had, have had glimpses of that, little lightning flashes, little glimmers of that. Um, so that's perhaps one way of reflecting upon, upon this particular image, so that when you meditate on, when you reflect on Padmasambhava, you're trying to connect with that quality of very bright, a very, very lucid, uh, spontaneous awareness and consciousness. Highly uh, creative, extremely uh, positive, uh, beyond the positive, if you like. What's interesting with Padmasambhava's life is that, 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 and you can see it is a very mythical kind of life, um, is, is, that, is what happens next. So he's adopted, he's trained to be the son and heir, the king, the next king of uh, the land. Um, But it goes badly wrong. Very, very, very badly wrong. Catastrophically wrong. I guess it's always dangerous if you um, adopt a foundling uh, found in a lotus. Um, You know, maybe not a good idea. Um, You know, it all looks wonderful and uh, everything's going to be fine, but... You know, you really don't know who, you, who you're getting. Um, you know, sometimes people feel that about their own children, that they've come from another dimension. And, um, you know, they're not, um, they've got their own agenda. Well, imagine if you've come from, what is it? The, 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 the unborn realm of reality is your homeland. You're definitely going to have a different agenda. So one of the things that starts to happen is, as Padmasambhava is, is brought up to be uh, a prince and uh, another ruler of the land, is, uh, well, in a way, rebellion. Um, he starts to behave very, very, very strangely. There are different versions of the life story. One of them is that he's trained in, uh, in, 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 to be a great athlete. And he's an exceptional athlete. He has so much energy he sort of bounds up the side of the palace and uh, on the top of the palaces, it seems that they had these tridents. He holds a trident there uh, to keep ravens away, apparently, which were, were bad omens, ravens and crows or something. And he's so intense with his energy, he knocks the, the trident off a roof and it, and it, it, it falls down and kills a Brahmin. Um, so, you know, through you could say no fault of his own, he kills um, um, a member of the highest caste, one of the ministers, and this is a complete disaster because you know, that, that, that's a terrible penalty in that uh, kind of culture. It, it really, it's the ultimate penalty. He has to pay really with his life, but because he's the king's son, uh, he, he can be banished instead. And it's very, very interesting, these, these stories of uh, uh, different stories, different versions of, of, of Padmasambhava, as it were, rebelling against uh, his environment. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to feel any... He's not angry or anything like that. There's no resentment. He just has completely unprogrammable, uncontainable, untrammeled energy uh, that cannot go down the tracks that are set for him, that burst out, that become very, very untidy, whether you take that literally as uh, bringing about the death of somebody or whether you take that symbolically. It's usually taken symbolically. And I think, again, there's a message. There's a message here um, in terms of our own practice, even though it seems so exotic and so, so distant. And I think the message is that be very, very careful not to try and domesticate or don't allow yourself to domesticate your vision. This is what can happen to people. People see beautiful things, uh, life-changing things, and they don't live by them. Uh, they, 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 they just incorporate them into a pretty mundane life. They domesticate uh, that energy, if you like. But be very, very careful because if you really have seen something and, 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 it, and it's really there, it is going to burst out. 
it is going to make your life inconvenient and uncomfortable. Sometimes I think people take up Buddhism thinking that Buddhism will and meditation will kind of make them able to handle the world. Um, you know, they'll, they'll carry on doing the same things and there'll be a bit of sort of Buddhist and meditative massage, you know, like a bit of adjustment therapy, which, which, which will just make them better consumers or less stressed consumers or uh, less stressed on their career path and all that sort of thing. That, that, that's a great shame and it's high risk, I would say. Uh, I would, I'd recommend a different tradition if, if, if that's your concern. I'd, I'd try something else because if it's really the Dharma, if it's really Dharma practice that you're doing, it's going to make your life inconvenient. In some ways, it's going to make it much worse. God, I, sorry, the order members here in the centre can explain all this later. I mean, <laughs> don't, don't write to me afterwards. But it can bring about great changes. It can bring about great changes. You, you start to change. You can't help but change. You don't even know you're changing, but you are. And one of the things that can happen, and this can be terribly poignant, is that your nearest and dearest notice the changes. And even if you're changing for the better, it makes them feel very uncomfortable. Um, because they realise that they're not in control anymore. Uh, thing, the, the definition of things is changing. Uh, so the, the relationships are going to change. And that can be very, very, uh, very challenging. I'm not saying that, 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 that you would have to leave and go away or anything like that. It's, that's too simple. Uh, but you have to find a way of, well, how does this energy coming from Dharma practice, how does that change? How does that come into all of these areas of my life so that I'm acting uh, with real integrity in relation to the Dharma and being true to the existing relationships? Sometimes it can lead to incredible change uh, where, you, where you feel you have to change everything. I've known people... Uh, like this and that and that can be very uh, painful very very demanding but the message is here the main message don't please domesticate your original vision of of the dharma your the, you know what's called you uh, to live this to live this kind of life don't don't try to contain it. It, it you know let it have its let it have its power if you like let it let it uh, let it transform let it uh, be as creative as it as it as it as it as it wants to be uh, with you. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine when he started to teach uh, meditation just for beginners, and he was noting the sort of changes that were happening just through teaching, you know, quite gentle mindfulness of breathing and metabhavna. I mean, nothing fancy, nothing heavy, just just mindfulness of breathing, metabhavna. He said noticing the changes that were going on with people in a beginner's course. He said he, he, he was realised he was lighting, you know, the end of a sort of, you know, cord going to a sort of stick of dynamite. And he felt an enormous sense of responsibility and also being really quite scared of, the, of, the, of, of, of what might happen. I hope I'm not putting any of you off the, the, the Dharma. So that, 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 so there's a meaning even in this story. Anyway, I said he was banished. He was sent. He was sent away, and he was sent. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of tradition. If you've, if you've, if you've, you know, caused the death of someone, especially you know a high caste person, there's only one thing you can do. You've got to purify yourself uh, through very, very serious ascetic practice you have to go and stay in the great cremation grounds. So he's, he was banished to a great cemetery called Sitavana, um, Chili Grove, um, the cold forest. Um, and this is a whole period in Padmasambhava's life in India where he goes to the eight or nine or twelve, the traditions differ, great uh, cremation grounds of India. He just seemed to go from one to another. The, the cremation ground in Indian Buddhist tantric tradition, and for, in, for that matter, Hindu, Indian Hindu tantric tradition, is an extraordinarily important symbol. Um, if you want to know anything about tantric tradition, you have to 
really familiarise yourself with the whole symbolism of the of the cremation ground, and uh, these are described enormously vividly in uh, in in the life of Padmasambhava. There, you you probably won't find these you know these the the, dis- the descriptions of the cremation ground. You probably won't have ever found them in the way they're described in the text. It's clearly evoking an archetypal realm, a mythic realm. I mean, there were great cremation grounds in India, and cremation grounds were usually situated in very remote areas outside of uh, the villages. Uh, They were regarded as places that you definitely didn't go to. Uh, Bodies were generally, in those days, just left uh, and sometimes heaped up from time to time in great pyres. Um, and the people that who, who would spend time there, the, the people working in the cremation grounds, were generally regarded as unclean, un, untouchable, um, because association with the dead is, is regarded as unclean activity in, in India. It's ritually impure. So there's all sorts of taboos in the cremation ground. That's the point. There's death, there's tremendous fear, there's loneliness, there's traditions of, of ritual uncleanness. So for a person, a man or a woman, to stay in that place, to make it their home, to make it their arena for spiritual practice, you're going into uh, all the areas that you would rather not look at. All the areas you would you would rather not look at. That's the sort of symbolism of, of going into these, these places. So this is where Padmasambhava spent many, many years, many, many years in these places. And the descriptions of, of these places, so it's a place, of course, of dead bodies, of skeletons, in bodies in different states of, of decay, um, and all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures uh, would would also appear all sorts of ghosts and ghouls and flesh eaters and weird gods and goddesses, all sorts of hybrid figures, you know, half man, half woman, half animal. Well, that's a lot of halves, isn't it? You know, thirds. Uh, lots of sort of shape-shifting uh, creatures. Very, very strange places. In particularly... Uh, figures known as Darkenes, you might have come across this word, Darkeny. Uh, Darkeny has m- a, you know, a multiplicity of meanings. Um, it can mean a, a figure symbolising uh, the highest wisdom inspiration, uh, the inspiration coming through uh, the space of the, of the experience of the voidness. But the Darkenes of the burning grounds are rather different. They're known as worldly darkenies. So, you know, make sure you, you know what kind of darkening you're uh, dealing with. Don't confuse the different kinds of darkenies or you might get into difficulty. So these darkenies are really violent, um, um, ghoulish, uh, blood-drinking, flesh-eating uh, goddesses um, who also can change their sex as w- at will. And their descriptions are absolutely wonderful in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. And it said he would sit, and he wouldn't be like he wouldn't be this depiction. He would be more or less naked, with just a few, you know, uh, bits of rag cloth draped upon him, and you know, different bone ornaments and long hair, and um, looking very sort of rough and ready. He would sit. With his back to a stupa, a stupa is a great um, uh, sort of monument of, of Buddhist relics. It symbolises the Dharma itself. He would sit with his back to a, to a stupa and watch these darkenies playing in front of him, changing colour, drinking blood, tearing out their entrails and eating them, doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And he would delight he would delight. He would go bright red with inspiration, watching this extraordinary play, this dance of life and death, uh, this ever-present, playful 
um, horror show before him and see its beauty. And it, would say, it said that he taught them the Dharma. He taught these Dharkanis the Dharma, which doesn't mean that he gave them a lecture on the Four Noble Truths. I don't think they would have got that. He taught them the Dharma through his presence, just through his presence. In other words, he communicated his experience, his realisation to this incredible display of energy. And of course, you could say, all those energies are him. They're not really, in the end, outside. They are all him. And it's a, a wonderful uh, image, this, of Padmasambhava teaching the worldly darkenies. And because he's communicating with them, because he can look at them, gaze at them unflinchingly and with inspiration, they reveal to him deeper teachings, all sorts of treasures, all sorts of things they're hiding and holding. And they start to enrich his Dharma practice, his Dharma life. So the symbolism here, um, there's so much symbolism here and I can't really unpack it and unfold it without, I think, you know, being rather sort of trite and reductive. But it's obvious what it's getting at. We need to take our Dharma practice into those places that we're really frightened of. You know, all those areas in ourselves that we'd rather not look at, that we'd rather not face up to, um, you know, perhaps you know, or our deepest fears, uh, perhaps even our sort of violent impulses, our lusts, our cravings, uh, all the kind of confusion of our own unconscious, we have to take our Dharma practice right into those places whatever they are, whatever they look like, uh, we need to take that, that light of the Dharma, that light of, um, you know, I talked about at the beginning, that vision of things into the deepest and darkest areas. I'm sure you, you're all, as I'm talking, thinking of what they might be, those private areas, perhaps, that perhaps only you know about. Uh, perhaps they only reveal themselves to you on certain occasions. The Dharma needs to go into those places. If the Dharma doesn't go into those places, then we're only very partially a Buddhist. Uh, we're, we're, we're a Buddhist probably from the neck up. Um, it needs to go right down into our entrails, our, our Buddhist practice. Uh, we need to take the light of the Dharma into that. So maybe that's something you can do some homework on. Uh, am I taking my Dharma practice into deeper and dark, darker areas and learning how to enjoy that learning the sort of pleasure in facing up to that um, the ups and downs I did a solitary retreat a few years ago and uh, I noticed that um, um, you know I took, it's taken me years to get to this point I mean you're going to laugh you know it's so sort of basic but I noticed that um, I'm an extremely moody uh, character. It's very nice of Sadaraja to talk about my depth and breadth of metta. And, and you know, I can put on a good show. But um, um, I'm a very, very sort of moody uh, person. I can change uh, emotion from the sublime to the sordid in the blink of an eye. Uh, not just from the sublime to the sordid, but from the sublime to the utterly banal. You know, m you know really... In, in moments. I mean, it's quite bizarre. And in the past, I used to find this very disturbing. And I thought, for goodness sake, get a grip on yourself. You know, come on, you know, do that mindfulness of breathing and concentrate your mind. But on this particular solitary retreat, I thought, actually, this is rather good. I rather like this. And rather than the, the metaphor of watching your mind, you know, you hear this, watch your mind, you hear that, it's such a Buddhist... Cliche. I just think that's such rubbish. I find that so alienating. Watching the mind, that's far too heady for me. I don't like that way of talking. Um, my experience is that I change colour. It's a sort of almost physical thing, physical and emotional body thing. It's like throughout the day, I'm just changing colour. I'm going from one mood to another. And once I'd sort of got the metaphor right for how I was... It's not I'm watching my mind and thoughts. It's more like 
I keep changing colour and keep transforming like those darkenings. It became so rich and less freaky. You know, it didn't sort of freak me out so much. Oh, I can enjoy this. I can enjoy the ups and downs, the peaks and troughs. This is extraordinarily rich. And I could do that because, you know, my, my, the, the, the core of my Dharma practice, which is, in fact, Metabhavna and meditating on Padmasana, is just very, very vivid. So it doesn't really matter what goes on because the heart of things is, is always there. So we need to start to learn to enjoy if you like, the changes. Relish uh, the changes. No matter how difficult and strange and, and weird they are, and learn to, to develop this sort of feeling for the dreamlike nature of life. Because that's what a dream is like, isn't it? This, this, this ever-changing you know, transformation. And the metaphor of dream is used to describe this life. It's just an incredibly vivid dream. Um, which when you know it's a dream, you can start effecting the transformations so that they are actually creative, not just for the benefit of yourself, but for others as well. So face your darkenies, your worldly darkenies, the, the blood-drinking ones, um, the ever-changing ones, and, uh, and go into the cremation ground, go into the dark places. There's one darkeny who's very, very interesting for Padmasambhava, and she's more of a wisdom darkening, although she has the sort of features of, of the other darkenings. He hears about this darkening called Surya Chandra Siddhi, the magical attainment of the union of sun and moon, the magical attainment of the union of solar and lunar energies. Wow. So he hears about this guru, this uh, darkening figure, a great red uh, darkening with her sun and moon uh, ornaments and he manages through his magic power to gain an entry into her uh, temple and asks for the initiation, asks for the teaching, asks to be given the teachings of total transformation and the union of solar and lunar energies and he makes various offerings, he's very devoted and she says, well, okay, uh, you can have that initiation. So she transforms him there and then into a syllable. Imagine that you come in here and ask for a teaching and Sadaraja or Ratnagosha transforms you into a syllable. You're not a being anymore. You're a, you're a hung. You're a hung syllable. And then not only that, she ate the syllable. You know, go to the Buddhist center and get eaten. She gets con- he gets consumed and swallowed. And as the syllable goes down, as he, as the syllable goes down through her different psycho-spiritual centers, he experiences all sorts of different teachings and initiations and transformations. And then he's ejected out of her secret lotus, completely transformed, utterly transformed. It's an incredible image of initiation, of teaching, of what it means to be with a teacher. We, we live our Buddhist life. We go along, you know, we're developing, adding a bit more, changing a bit more. Uh, actually, the reality is you're going to be completely consumed and swallowed and eaten and transformed. Sooner or later, maybe not in this life, but if you keep going in this, this Dharma life, I mean, that is what's going to happen in the end. There's a great uh, Sufi master named uh, Ahmad Ghazali uh, who, who, who wrote a great treatise in Persian on love. Love means reality in this tradition. Ishk. And uh, he in one place says, love is a man-eater. Love is a man-eater. It consumes human nature and leaves nothing behind. Well, that's the same with the Dharma. The Dharma consumes you, transforms you, transfigures you. Yes, you'll look like a human being, like every, anybody else and like everybody else, but that won't be your real nature. Um, your real nature will be something else. 
it will be completely transformed. And this is really the, the whole, if you like, arc of, of Padmasambhava's life, is that the, the, the Indian part is really more to do with him um, receiving teachings and initiations, going on all sorts of adventures, but undergoing this tremendous sort of transformation and training. And it's all happening in a very, very dreamlike, poetic, mythic, archetypal uh, space. But the second part of Padmasambhava's life story is where he comes into historical time, and more recognisably historical time, 8th century Tibet. And you could see, this is very interesting, you can see the emergence then of this being, this being now of full of wisdom and compassion and tremendous, precise, skillful means, entering into the specific, specific time and place with specific people. This is very important, Buddhist practice doesn't just take place within, as it were, consciousness. It's got to come into the specific, even the local, uh, the local, the, 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 the concrete. It's got to come into that, as I'm sure you know. So the story of, of Padmasambhava in, 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 in coming to Tibet is a very, very important and, and interesting one. In a way, you could see this is you know, he's sort of, as it were, everything that he's preparing for, if you like, in this, in this time period, in this period of history. The story is that the great Tibetan king, Trisongdetsen, uh, had become a Buddhist and wanted Buddhism to become uh, the, the, the Dharma, to become the religion of Tibet. And... Yes, there'd been a few ordinations of Tibetans who'd become monks and so on, but he wanted there to build a monastery, a temple, a place, an institution, if you like, an environment where teachings could be given, where people could gather as a community, where initiations could be given, where images and... Uh, and paintings of, of the symbols of the Dharma could be vividly displayed, a focal point for people. He wanted to build the great monastery of Samye, but he had a lot of obstructions. The workers would work in the day building this monastery, and at night, mysteriously, everything had been taken apart. The walls were taken down, all the rocks and dirt were back in the place they'd come from. This kept going on. And he was advised by an Indian monk named Shantarakshita, look, you've got a real problem here because this is the gods of place, uh, the, 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 the geniuses of, of place, the local deities. They're not happy. They're not cooperating. They're offended. Um, they see this as, as oppressive. You've got to bring them on, on board. They're the people taking... They're the beings taking this down. So you've got this wonderful image of workmen putting something up and then at night these creatures are coming out of the ground, coming out of the lakes and the rocks and the trees, taking it all down. Um, and Shantar actually says, I can't do anything about this. I've cultivated um, more peaceful approaches to Buddhist practice. You need somebody who is really familiar with what needs to be done to bring these forces uh, into the Dharma itself. There's only one man for that, and that's Padmasambhava. He is the figure in India who has the greatest reputation for being able to bring the Dharma in relationship to these uh, forces. Again, it's a wonderful image for us. Don't we know it? You know, just in our own personal life, you know, we, we, we go to bed with all sorts of resolutions about how we're going to get up early in the morning and do more meditation than usual so that we're in a really good state before we go to work. Overnight, that, that wonderful aspiration has just been completely taken apart by whatever stuff has been going on in your dream life, in your unconscious overnight. And it's like, oh, no, I don't, no, I don't, don't think I'll get up early. It's nice in here. And... Um, yeah, yeah. 
we won't we won't bother with that today. Don't you? So it's a great image. You know, we often do that. Other forces have other ideas about how things should be. So anyway, um, Padmasambhava is called. Takes him a long time to come. He doesn't come easily. This is very important. If you invoke uh, a teacher, a guru, they don't necessarily turn up at your beck and call. They have their own uh, particular time. They have their own particular way of of going about things. And one of the things Padmasambhava did before he arrives in Tibet is to spend his time going around the Tibetan borders and in the mountain ranges and the glaciers and the lakes. And it's he, what he's doing is facing down, facing up to the gods and the goddesses, the deities of place. And it is a wonderful description in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava of his encounters with these extraordinary figures, these extraordinary beings. It's interesting, they're not, very important, they're not evil. They're not sort of seen as evil and devils, they're natural forces. I remember saying to Sankarachita once, what am I doing when I meditate on Padmasambhava? What, well, how should I see him? What's happening? And he said, well, it's very simple. What you're concerned with is the transformation. He said, not of, it's not evil or anything like that, but natural forces, the natural forces in you, the natural forces in the land, very, very powerful, deep energies. They have to come into the Dharma. They have to enrich uh, the Dharma. It's very interesting with some of these figures. They're sort of, in, in Padmasambhava's dealings with them, they present themselves as great big sort of um, reptiles. It's quite interesting, you know, you can imagine perhaps what that symbolism is. Great big sort of lizards who, who rear up and want to consume him or, or scorpions with, with nine stings on their tails and things like that. What he does is very interesting. The, the refrain is, you know, after a bit of a sort of magical punch-up, I mean, it's, it's, far more, it's far more out there than Harry Potter films and things like that. It's much, much more edgy and, and in a sense, violent than that. But after, after the initial testing where he, where he doesn't break, it's said that um, what he does, and this, the, 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 he's holding a Vajra there, a, a, a diamond thunderbolt, in, in this uh, mudra, which is said to be the demon-subduing mudra, or the mudra which overpowers uh, existence, what he does is, the details are very interesting, it says that what they do after their encounter, what he gets them to reveal to him, are the hearts of their lives. The hearts of their lives. Now, hearts of their lives, the word for heart in Tibetan is Nyingpo. Um, and Nyingpo translates either the Sanskrit Hridaya, which means heart, or the Sanskrit Bija, which means seed. In this case, seed syllable. In other words, they tell him their name, their heart name. He names them. He gets them to reveal who they really are. And as soon as they reveal their name, they change. Usually it's something very, very beautiful. Um, a young prince or a young goddess. They become you know, very uh, uh, beautiful and receptive. And he gives them treasures to protect, treasures of the Dharma that he wants hidden away for future generations. And they vow to protect. They vow to support. In other words... The local deities of the land are going to support the work of the Dharma. But it's, it's this business of the name that I particularly want to, that I want to uh, dwell on. You know, so often we have difficulty in our Dharma life because we're not able to name the things that are going on for us. Sometimes people think even that something is a problem for them when it's actually a virtue. I've seen that so many times. People thinking that there's an area of their life which they should give up when it's actually really very rich and important and needs to become 
much more incorporated into their life and it's playing up because they're not giving it the right kind of attention. I've seen that with artists, you know, in our movement, the neglect of these very strong creative impulses and those creative impulses are not having it and, and, and they're really upsetting uh, the Dharma life. They need attention, they need to be brought on board or maybe strong physical energies sometimes they need exercise they need uh, they need to be fed uh, if you like and they need to enrich uh, dharma practice what's also interesting with this story is that padmasambhava doesn't convert demons just for the fun of it you know people love it when they hear about oh converting demons and local gods i want to do that no there's a purpose the purpose is to build something it, the purpose is to create this incredible palace of the Dharma, this whole environment where people can come together as a spiritual community. That's, that's why he does it. Sometimes Padmasambhava, people in our own tree Ratna rather superficially, think that, think that Padmasambhava mm. and figures like him represent a sort of anarchic element in, in, in Buddhism, almost an antinomian element. And you know, getting together and organising and things like that is, is sort of, well, that's, that's not Padmasambhava energy and I'm into the Padmasambhava energy, you know, where you get your kit off and, you know, dance around and things like that. But, I mean, that is so unbelievably shallow, unbelievably, um, you know, facile. They built a monastery, a temple, where Padmasambhava could teach, where the great teachers could come and teach, where the Sangha could meet and come together in harmony and love, uh, where everything could be unfolded. That's an incredible achievement. You know, running a centre like this is an extraordinary achievement. And there's all sorts of forces that you're up against when you create and you have to recreate an environment like this. And it's an incredible uh, thing to do. It means we can come together. Uh, in human relationship and meet together in a, in a beautiful uh, environment very, very positively. Um, and it's very interesting with, 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 with the Tibetans that, that, that one, one particular writer, um, Janet Gyatso, says that Tibetan culture is a culture of profound spiritual longing. Profound spiritual longing. It's longing for the return of Padmasambhava, the longing for Padmasambhava to return, to be present again, because when Padmasambhava was present, the Dharma was present. The country was united around the Dharma. You had environments like the great monastery of Samye. That's, that's the great wish, the great urge. It's not you know, for anarchy and for and for dissipation and, and, and individualism. It's for people to come together uh, profoundly uh, in, in the life of the Dharma. And Padmasambhava's time in Tibet, some people say he only spent a, a year or two there. Others say it was much longer. Whatever the time he spent, the tradition is he had a profound effect. A profound effect. So much so, there's just so much intense love for the figure of Padmasambhava. Intense uh, love and, and devotion. He seems to have been someone with incredible skills of, of communication and uh, presence and uh, people feeling that the Dharma was profoundly near to them when he was there. But of course, a figure like this uh, cannot possibly uh, be held um, and held on to. He has to go. He has to go because he has other things to do. He has to go for our benefit too because uh, we, we need to learn to internalise him more fully. And it's said that he doesn't die. The last sections of the life and liberation of Padmasambhava show him with his disciples going up to the highest part of a pass on a mountaintop and he's taken up on a wonderful blue winged horse surrounded by beautiful uh, darkenies of course and flying off to the southwest wherever that is to the copper coloured mountain where 
he's going to keep a very close eye and teach the Dharma uh, to the flesh-eating Rakshasas who are about to take over the world. Um, he's got his work cut out at the moment, as we know. Uh, and that's where he is, on the copper-coloured mountain, um, teaching these strange uh, beings. It's very interesting, the end of the life of Padmasambhava, because it ends with a tremendous hymn, really, of longing by his uh, greatest Tibetan disciple, Yeshed Sogyal. And she just sings this love song, really, uh, to Padmasambhava, this sense of, yes, well, you've gone. Um, but it's curious, you know, sometimes when you hear these songs of longing and love, actually, in that longing, Padmasambhava is present, weirdly. In the absence is the presence. When you really acknowledge the absence of that dimension, then you can really open up uh, to that dimension. And uh, it's very, very uh, moving, very, very strong, very hard, perhaps, for us to relate to. And then there's an interesting detail in, in some of the recensions of the life story that after he goes, everybody goes back to their monasteries, to their homes, to their hermitages. They all go back to their practice. They all go back to their Dharma life. It goes on. The practice goes on, even though the guru has gone. In a sense, he hasn't. He's there in the practice. And uh, recently I had an experience where I had more of a sort of feeling for what this might have been like, this sense of loss, when your teacher goes. You're probably aware that our own teacher, Ergyan Sangharakshita, died some months ago. And I first met Ergyan Sangharakshita Bhante when I was 17. Uh, and so I've known him a very long time and... He is the strongest, single most influence on my life. I've absolutely no doubt that he has given me everything I need to transform my life in the light of the Dharma. The only thing in the way of that is myself. And uh, he named me. Uh, he named me Padmavadra. He gave me uh, all the practices that I need. He created the spiritual community of which I'm a part and of course, when he died, um, it's had a well, huge effect on me and on many others. And the day he died, I had a curious sort of double experience in the shrine room at Papaloka at the end of, a, of our puja. I had the sense of a great bird flying off into space. A sense of vastness, a sense of, ah, oh, my teacher has actually gone and that's very painful. At the same time, I felt that he was inside me. Uh, he was with me uh, in the Dharma that he'd given me. Both were true. Uh, that sense, in a sense, of loss. That sense of longing. And also that sense of, of, of presence. And uh, at times it's been, I have to admit, that I have felt quite upset, particularly returning to... Adistana and realising that I can't go and see him, just go and pay my respects. I mean, I didn't need to see him, I just loved seeing him. Um, I didn't need any more Dharma or anything like that. Um, but then I reflected, ah, yes, but your message to me every time, like Padmasambhava's message to his disciples, was I need to take responsibility for myself. And I can take responsibility for myself. In all of his teachings, that was the message always from Bhante to, to me. Um, and, well, this is the ultimate teaching. He's gone. And here I am uh, with the Dharma. Here we are um, with our spiritual community. So I can, in a way, relate perhaps in a small way to that experience of Yeshid Sogyal and, and the Tibetan uh, disciples. And of course, Bhante Urkin Sangharakshita is strongly in the tradition of Padmasambhava. Uh, his name, Urgyan Sangharakshita, was given to him by his teacher, Kachu Rinpoche, who gave him the Padmasambhava meditation uh, practice. And Urgyan is 
the name of the land where Padmasambhava comes from. So if you're called Ergyen something, it means that is your true uh, spiritual home, Ergyen, the land of Padmasambhava. And I feel greatly honoured and greatly privileged and enormously grateful that my teacher is in that uh, tradition, which in a very small way flows on here and now in this place, in this time, with all the challenges that we have in ourselves and in the world around us. There we are.